0: Well, welcome to our final installment of our overview of church history that we entitled On the Shoulders of Giants. Uh, I've had a really good time uh, over the last however many months that we've taken to look at uh, going reaching back to the previous year, starting in the early church and, and then this semester with the Reformation all the way up to today. Um, so much that I've learned. I hope you can say that you've learned at least a fraction of what I have. And uh, we do want to save time at the end for any questions, comments in general, or anything about specific stuff that we cover tonight. Uh, But in order to do that, we're going to need to move at a... at a a good pace in order to cover a lot of material tonight. Uh, But certainly if you have any anecdotal uh, comments about any of the the people that we'll be talking about tonight, we're going to look at Billy Graham and a few others, Um, you're welcome to share that with us. Uh, Of course, all this material is going to be online as usual uh, with the resources and links and uh, things for you to listen to and read. Uh, So as we jump in, Brad, I'll ask if you would like to open us up in a word prayer. Sure. Father, we thank you for
1: how much we have learned these last couple of years in this class. We thank you for the great heritage that we have. We thank you for the knowledge that... Uh, imperfect people, ordinary people, have been used by you to do extraordinary things. And they have uh, thought much, thought deeply, and thought uh, correctly in many cases and incorrectly in others about Scripture. And Lord, we tend to take for granted uh, all that we know, but so much of what we know is the result of Much debate, much study, much prayer, much discussion uh, amongst your people. And so, Lord, we pray that as we wrap this class up tonight, that uh, you would help us to apply as much as possible so that we, as we stand on the shoulders of giants, Lord, see more clearly. and. Communicate the gospel uh, more clearly as well. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Amen. Well, you can see, um, as far as the agenda, we only have two major topics, although it will be a lot of material. And Brad and I will uh, sort of bat evangelicalism back and forth amongst us as we move forward before we look at some of the more particular miscellaneous theological developments from the 20th and, and even the 21st century. So when we think of evangelicalism, Brad, if you're okay with this, what I think I'll do is just introduce this first point, and then maybe you can comment as we go along. Okay. And... Um, and if you remember our previous class, we looked at fundamentalism and how it began uh, what was in 1910 to 1915 where the fundamentals were published and, and distributed and we talked about, or I may have mentioned that there were two types of fundamentalists, fundamentalists. one who's very proud to be called a fundamentalist, and then others who said, I am a fundamentalist, but I don't want to be called one. Uh, Machen was one of the latter. He was uh, very, very much stalwart and a defender of the true and orthodox faith. Um, but he didn't want to be nailed down with uh, some of the Uh, the more caricatures that people had of fundamentalists especially during the 20s when uh, Scopes Trial and and several other things that were really uh, taking place to to really pigeonhole fundamentalists as a group Uh, but he came down through a a legacy of Princetonians going all the way back to Jonathan Edwards and his grandson Timothy Dwight B.B. Warfield who we didn't talk about much but uh, in the 19th century was a, a big influence for the uh, the Protestant church. And then Machen, um, I don't think he ever made it as president of Princeton, but as a, uh, a teacher, as a professor there, He was one of the few who stood for the truth of of Scripture, and he paid for it. And they pretty much ran him out of town because at that point, Princeton University had gone the way of the liberals. And so they created Princeton Seminary, which started out conservative, and by the time the 20s rolled around and Machen is there teaching, that too had gone uh, to the modernist theology. Uh, So he was one of the last before Princeton fell to liberalism. And uh, as a fundamentalist, he sort of paved the, the initial groundwork for what we now call evangelicalism. Uh, that it was holding to the fundamentals, but not so much the, um, the hang ups that society and culture put on fundamentalists, that it was outward thinking, it was not cliquish. Uh, So he really wanted to uh, put into practice for society, to to better society, what the Bible was teaching. Uh, Whereas fundamentalists increasingly got more inward focus and isolationist. Uh, so he created the, uh, what I think was the, the groundwork for evangelicalism. And you can see there in 1942 where the, the NAE was established, and those points were, uh, that website is, is up. That's where I got the that information is from, the NAE website. And that is part of their core beliefs. That's what they were founded on. That's what they continue to believe and uphold. And um, we can see also, A definition. uh, Evangelical is one of those things where you're going to get a different definition depending on however many people you ask. Everyone has their own idea of what it means, who's included in it, uh, what are the boundaries of it. And that's some of the things that we want to look at is what are the origins and uh, who can rightly be called an evangelical today. Uh, So you see Dr. Moeller uh, commenting on that from the, the Gospel Coalition post. And probably the main figure in 20th century, the, the start of evangelicalism. Brad will talk about uh, Mr. Henry, who we mentioned in the last class. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to get a little bit more into him now. Carl Henry is probably
1: the most important evangelical theologian of the 20th century that you don't know. Anybody know Carl Henry? You know much about this guy at all? He was one of the prime movers in the establishment of the National uh, Evangelical Association, National Association of Evangelicals. And what you just heard Neil articulate was the pendulum swings of every movement. Um, politically, we're, you know, we're on the high end of one swing and we, we, we hope it comes back. We don't know if it will or not. Uh, it will eventually. Uh, it just not maybe the way that we wanted to, uh, Henry did not want to be defined with fundamentalism in its very narrow approach to Christianity. Uh, he sought to establish a movement where uh, conservative biblical scholars could be considered um, well worthy of of honor and respect in the academic world. Um, In 1949, in addition to helping to establish the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942, Henry helped establish Fuller Seminary. We're going to talk a lot about Fuller tonight, uh, and most of it is not in a good way. It was in a very good way in 1949 when Charles E. Fuller, an evangelist, established uh, Fuller Seminary, and again, Um, uh, Carl Henry was a big part of that. In 1956, uh, Henry became the first editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, which was Billy Graham's brainchild, but again, Henry was constantly working with other evangelicals, and, and Graham wanted to combat, you might find this interesting if you know Graham's theology in his later years, but in those days, Graham wanted to combat liberalism, and so he established Christianity Today, Carl Henry was the first editor-in-chief of that magazine, which uh, one of his visions was to um, answer the liberal publication Christian Century, and he wanted a place for evangelical scholars to talk about theology. There's some of that that goes on in Christianity today, but not as much, not nearly as, as much as it was in the early years. Um, in 1978, Henry participated in the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in Chicago, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. He was one of the signers of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And in 1983, it completed his really his life's work called God, Revelation, and Authority. And you probably, it's kind of like reading Carl Barth, is my understanding. I haven't read that book, but you almost need an interpreter to, who interprets the in, you know, the the, the original writing. Um, so, uh, Carl Henry had a great deal of say about evangelicalism. One of his problems was in desiring to, when I say one of his problems, one of the problems with what he sought to do was that in desiring to broaden the camp and allow a lot more people into uh, the group called evangelicals, he made it too broad. In fact, Albert Moeller's definitions of evangelicalism was an attempt to once again keep it from being so broad. Uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, Mark Knoll from Wheaton wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and he was essentially saying there is no evangelical mind. Uh, just a few years ago Carl Truman who is a professor of theology up at Westminster in Philadelphia and if you ever get a chance to read anything by Carl Truman read it he's rather sarcastic he's brilliant sarcastic but dead on most of the time uh, wrote a book a little book called The, the real scandal of the evangelical mind and he was essentially saying there is no evangelical it's so broad the term is so broad or the field is so broad it's meaningless and a great number of people in, within evangelicalism uh, constantly put down people to the right and elevate people to the left. And so it's moving. The whole evangelical movement has has moved more the left, more liberal, which we will talk about some corrections to that tonight.
2: Which matches every, every other
1: aspect of society. And every yeah. theological movement in history just yeah. about. There, it always, all, almost always moves in that direction. But you are right, it's keeping pace with culture. Theology is keeping pace. Carl Henry wanted to have a voice in the public square. He wanted an intellectual reason, rational conservative, biblical voice in the public square. And so just like everything else, some things are gained and some things are lost when you seek to do those types of ministry.
0: Those points you see there under his name, uh, he actually included those in a letter to Billy Graham describing what he had as a vision for the magazine Christianity Today. And uh, the author that I was reading about Henry took those same points uh, and used it to describe him. Not only the magazine, but Henry himself was transcontinental, interdenominational, theological, theologically affirmative, socially aggressive, and ironic. So he wanted to approach things in a friendly manner, but he, he wanted to take the Bible and all its truths and get it out and, and give hands and feet to it. Uh, Other notable evangelicals of the 20th century you can see there, Billy Graham. Uh, What's interesting is when you look back at Graham's earlier life, if you can get a hold of any articles or anything about his relationship, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, it's either Temple or Templeton, uh, who started out as a fellow evangelist, and he ended up leaving the faith. I believe now he's agnostic. Uh, He may have, did he pass away just a couple years ago? I think
1: maybe, and he was the one who gave the award every year for religious, uh, uh, I believe. What's the Templeton Award? In Chicago, I believe it's in Chicago, and uh, I remember Chuck Colson won it one time. It's a million dollar award, something like that, for advancement. Anybody know Templeton? Uh, It's not advancement of the gospel, but something
3: like advancement of, or... (laughs) Faith that yes. Something like
0: that. Like discussion of religious ideas. Yeah. Very pluralistic. Uh so that that's actually the way he went, his pluralism. He denied the the essentials of the faith, basically. So you, you can kind of see this parallel, but but then diverging roads between Templeton and and Graham, and you can see how much good um, for the kingdom that Graham has done to spread the gospel throughout the entire world. Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones is is a uh, I believe uh, Catherwood. If, if you haven't gotten his book yet, get Catherwood's little pocket guide to church history. Grandson. It was his. It was his grandson. paternal um, grandson, and um, he stated, and he has sufficient backing in order to say this that he was. Uh, see if I get it right. The um, the most or the most prolific preacher, expository preacher of the 20th century. Um, verse by verse or mm, at least book by book. Yeah. And uh,
1: what Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones, uh, the, the doctor in front of his name is was actually his first profession. He was a medical doctor. But then just was compelled to preach and uh, f- f- cared far more
0: about that than he did. Many of these guys, practicing medicine, uh, Graham, Lloyd Jones, and Schaefer, um, they really took to the streets, so to speak, uh, shortly after World War II, where they saw the devastation in Europe and in England, and, and they were able not only to preach the word but to uh, to live the word out uh, amongst the the children who were destitute because of the war and reestablish uh, a, a culture there in Europe. Um, Stott, Packer, again, Schaefer. Uh, could be he's, he was a minister he was a philosopher he was an evangelist, apologist and set up the uh, what you call it, a consortium uh, uh, Labrie um,
1: yeah, Louisville. the uh, most inspirational book I've ever one? read is Labrie by Edith Schaefer if you ever get an opportunity to read it it is worth while um, those three guys I, I just got to have to say a little bit about all three of them start Uh, Anglican pastor, uh, pastor of All Souls Souls Church in, uh, where is it, Langham uh, in central London, Anglican pastor, if I'm preaching through a book, and Stott's got a commentary on it. You've, you're hearing some of his thoughts. It, 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 amazing theologian with a pastoral heart, but Stott—I read about Stott in, in a Christianity Today article. In fact, saying that when people would visit, he was a horrible host because he was so consumed with this study. Mm-hmm. And he was a pastor all those years, but then he wrote and gave his time to writing. Uh, he would—you would hardly even see him. You'd stay in his home for a couple of days and not even see him. Packer wrote Knowing God. Anyone have a word of testimony about that book, Knowing God? It's such an important book for uh,
0: our day. It has been a while for me, but uh, I I have a hard time remembering the details, but it, it was one of those that got me on the track of, of reading more theological works. Well, it got me set on... The
1: doctrine of God, God. is very thoroughly uh, covered. One of the things that you might not know, in fact, I didn't know this until preparing for this, is that Packer served as a general editor of the English Standard Version, the, the mm. version we use, and in fact was the um, theological editor of the Study Bible Version. So uh, really, Stott and And uh, Packer both. And Stott was, we started the very first night with one of his quotes. He said, to disregard church history and the advances of theology in church history is to disregard the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. I agree with him because we are indeed standing on the shoulders of of giants but Packer both of those guys brilliant minds as well as very able communicators although I watched Packer's uh, eulogy of Stott's at Stott's funeral and I didn't know who would die sooner Packer or me I was it was just awful Uh, Francis Schaefer but he's very old Man, he's contributed so much. Francis Schaefer anticipated postmodernism way before its time. He wrote for the 21st century in the 1960s and 70s. Le Brie, so many notable uh, thoughtful Christians uh, came to faith at this home at that Francis Anita Schaeffer had in the in the Swiss mountains. And this is actually, it's all over the place. My brother-in-law and his wife met at the England Le Brie, in fact. Uh, so it's a it's a philosophical way of approaching theology. And every theologian, including all of you, approach theology philosophically. You're all theologians if you study, if you talk about Scripture at all, if you try to understand it and explain it in any way, you're a theologian. And we all approach it philosophically, whether we, we know we do or not. And Schaeffer, along with Carl Henry, were both... Uh, Understood theology through a presuppositional approach to apologetics, which they essentially said God has revealed Himself, and we know Him primarily through His Word, and He reveals Himself in propositions. He says this, this, and this is true, and we cannot know Him apart from Him revealing Himself to us, and then we are to study and understand Him at in the ways that He wants to wants us to. Okay. On uh,
2: John Scott, I'm not mistaken.
1: He's a really great theologian, uh, but he is a, I'm not sure if I've the right term, a cessationist uh, when it comes to the afterlife. Uh, he he is what? <coughs> like a nihilist? A an- cessationist. A nihilist? A, a, a believes in a nihilism? So, s- for if, if you are an unbeliever, you're judged in... Then you're annihilated,
0: correct? Okay, that's it, that's stopped. news to me. I'll have to check on that. Uh, We're going to look a little bit further into evangelicalism. Um, Again, a lot of these 20th century movements were in response to uh, not only liberalism, but the the steam that liberalism was gaining and had gained up to that point. And one of the primary issues was biblical inerrancy. Uh, Liberalism said, oh, it it can mean, it doesn't have to be historically true. It just needs to give us an idea of our relationship with God. Um, however, evangelicalism says, no, the, the Bible is completely true and all that it affirms. And so uh, in the seventies, there was the ICBI created, which is the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which was a group of nearly 300, uh, you can see the theologians, pastors, and uh, scholars from, from uh, 38 denominations. And what they did, they came together I can't remember who, I think it was Jim Boyce and R.C. Sproul got talking in 73, and one said to the other, yeah, I think you should get a council together to address this. And, and the other said, Yeah, I think so too, but I'm busy. How about you do it? <laughs> so it took them a couple of years to get together, but in 78 they did. And they, they put together the uh, Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. But when they did that, when they brought to life this council, they set for themselves a 10 year span lifespan saying hey we've, we're going to publish our works during this 10 years we're going to m- market for lack of a better term this idea of biblical inerrancy and then this council will dissolve having done its work and in that time they continu- they followed up uh, their statement of inerrancy with hermeneutics in 82 and, and also biblical application in 86 uh, so you cannot go to the ICBI website because there is none. The council doesn't exist anymore. But you can look online and, and just about anywhere has uh, links to those statements. And they, they have affirmations and denials, uh, just like many creeds uh, throughout history have had. And you can see some of the names of those uh, who signed on with that, as many of those should be familiar to you. Quite a broad group, yeah. um, which, which is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, when you, you bring that many and that diverse a group together to agree on something as important as biblical inerrancy, it's that, saying something. And, and inerrancy, I think, is what conservative
1: evangelicals would like to be the defining issue uh, of evangelicalism. Um, but there are others that constantly are seeking to broaden that term. Although, I don't think that'll hold if things keep going the way they are, you're either you either all the way in or you're really watered down and you're you're not wanting to be identified with this group over here at all.
0: So that pretty much sums up the origins of uh, evangelicalism, where it came from, what it became. And as we talked about uh, throughout the, the years since its inception, uh, it has gotten broader, it's gotten more liberal. The term itself has broadened in order to mean many different things. Uh, but what we want to do now is look at some of the theological developments that uh, came about since then. This is going to be in the uh, 21st century really. Well, I think it probably reaches back to the 1990s mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of this started and again you can see Rob Bell's uh, quote there and he would, he would be an emergent uh, he would consider himself evangelical at some, at some times he would uh, but in reality he's no no better than liberal uh, theology. Uh, so you can see by his definition, it sounds good, but it's missing something. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> it's missing anything theological. It's missing anything affirming um, biblical inerrancy, biblical truth. The Bible uh, itself. The, yeah, the Bible itself. There's, there's no biblical grounding other than to be. Christianly to the culture around him. So he is he is subject number one. He's the prime example of postmodern theology. Um, if, if you remember any of the books that he wrote, uh, Love Wins and, and probably a couple others, he demonstrates that postmodern thought that if you ask him a question, He's not going to answer. It. He's going to jump around, and he will not define what he's talking about because that would mean standing on solid ground somewhere. Uh, he's not going to do that. He's going to dance around and change his answers, and, and not really get nailed down on any particular uh, aspect. But then you look at the the whole of everything that he teaches and writes and believes and speaks about, and it is just so far it is outside of Christianity. You know, one thing I wanted to to bring bring out about Machen, and this may may tie the the founding of evangelicalism with its abuses that um, he wrote a book uh, I can't remember the days in the 20s Christianity and Liberalism and in that book you can actually tell by the title (coughs) that he, uh, he demonstrates that liberalism the modern theology is a completely different religion than Christianity And with guys like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, that's also what we have with the emergent movement is that they, at times, would call themselves evangelical, but yet through their teaching would deny the essentials of biblical orthodoxy.
1: Yeah, um, so often with liberals, same thing with emergent. Uh, It's not what they say, it's what they don't say that reveals who they are more quickly. Eventually, they'll say the wrong things. But initially, if you want to... How many times you hear people say, well, I didn't hear anything that concerned me? Well, what did you not hear? You know, did you not hear the right things? If you didn't hear the right things, if you don't hear the gospel, and and love wins... Bell reveals his hand pretty early. He shows that sketch. You, you remember the sketch about the. It looks like a, a canyon, and there's a gap in between high ground, and then the cross is laid over it, and down beneath there's hell. And, you know, people are, if you think about the old chick tracks, you know, people are falling into it and everything. And he was talking about how terrifying that was, and what a horrible thing to show children that this is who God really is. And essentially says there is no judgment, and you no know, there is no uh, and and we 'll talk about how people are able to do that in just a moment if if Bell is the spokesperson, McLaren is the uh, He's the theologian. He's the thinker. Generous orthodoxy, he wrote. Uh, And I heard him being interviewed one time and he was quoting someone who, with favor, and he agreed with this person who said, if the... um, Idea that God was punishing Jesus for our sins is true, then that makes God a celestial child abuser. And I can't believe that. So, just denies the satisfaction the theory of the atonement, substitution th- uh, theory. So,
0: well, it's not all bad news in the 21st century. Uh, along the same time period, uh, another movement occurred uh, also among young people. Uh, these guys that you see up here under the emergent liberalism were young when this movement was gaining ground. And also, the new Calvinism made a resurgence. Uh, this is uh, looking from a younger generation getting more interested into the reformed aspect of the faith. and. Um, and Colin Hansen you see there in that second point coined the phrase young, restless, and reformed in a 2006 article in Christianity Today, which he followed up in 2008 with a book by the same name. And uh, it, it basically follows or chronicles a growing minority within the church of younger people getting more and more interested in the doctrines of grace and um, in the sovereignty of God, the, the bigness of God, uh, which is uh, a hard heartening thing to hear um, but it's not so much uh, Calvin. They're not really reading Calvin and, and those historical things but they're looking at the Bible and saying what does the Bible say? Is it really saying these things? Um, so that's, that can be a good thing of course with all movements. Uh, there are going to be strength as well as weaknesses. Uh, Some of those weaknesses uh, coming in the form of the restless portion, uh, being young and restless and reformed. That uh, early on, several of the younger pastors who tried to model themselves uh, I don't know that they really modeled themselves after some of the older pastors. We see John Piper and maybe R.C. Sproul and these guys. They made uh, indiscretionary decisions in their their styles, where their attitudes were a little bit uh, too What's the word? They were just unwise in how they went about things. They were flaunting their freedom to, to drink alcohol or uh, or cigarettes or whatever. And, and we can argue, of course, yeah. that there's nothing wrong with that. But then when you flaunt it in public, it becomes a stumbling block for others, which doesn't make you out to be a very wise leader. I think a lot of that was sort of um, in conjunction with the emergent
1: church. The emergent church looked actually like, wow, these guys have, are, are really doing something impressive here, but very quickly the doctrine uh, revealed itself to be uh, sort of a 21st century version of liberalism. And we've talked about this before, but in in the Enlightenment, late 18th century, early 19th century. Pastors, theologians said modern man will not accept Scripture with all of its claims to supernatural. So we have to demythologize Scripture. Take all the myth out of Scripture. Well, what hap- what's happening now is that pastors are saying and theologians are saying, look, the supernatural stuff's okay. Everybody believes in angels and I hear people all the time, this weekend someone was telling me, I'm, I'm very spiritual but not in the same way you are. And a girl actually told me the other day, uh, I pray. I'm not religious but I pray. And so, uh, the spiritual is okay, but all of Scripture's claims to exclusivity are not okay. Like, you have to exclude um, Anyone who doesn't follow what your conservative theology says about same-sex marriage, we'll, we'll talk about this more tonight. And also, hell is just an awful idea. So that's like Rob Bell saying there is no hell. And um, all the evil in the world has got to be an explanation, and we talked about this last time, open theism. So the idea that God is responding to, to the evil in the world. He's not aware of it ahead of time. So uh, the emergent church took, it, it just took flight very quickly. And there were a lot of people that say, we don't agree with your doctrine, but we really don't like your
0: methods. And so that's where the unwise. Uh, yeah, so they, the emergent movement was like a shooting star. It gained popularity very quickly, but then it fell apart. Um, and, and so, with the, uh, similarly with the new Calvinism, that these younger pastors who were coming out through seminary, wanted to pattern themselves with the pragmatism that they saw in in the emergent movement but yet they wanted to hold on to true doctrine. So that at one point, one had to go. And I, I think we're starting to see a, a maturity come about. So it's a good thing that people are getting more interested into a, a God who is sovereign and, and who, soteriology, you see there, is the, the doctrine of salvation or the study of how God saves us. So that's definitely a good thing. And I uh, just listened to a five-year follow-up interview with Colin Hansen. So that would have been in, uh, what, 2013? Thank <laughs> you. Um, where he's talking about some of the the things, the patterns that he's seeing within those five years, and and it's a good good signs. There has been maturation. We talked about the the younger pastors, uh, Matt Chandler and um, Joshua Harris, and some of those guys you may have seen books about or you may see on on YouTube uh, preaching something like that. But uh, hopefully they are taking MacArthur's advice of growing up, settle down, and continuing to reform.
2: sounds yeah, kind of parallel to in the 60s they said they don't trust anybody
0: over,
2: over
1: 30 and the 70s 80, don't trust anybody under 30. Right? <laughs> yeah. We're back 30 to don't trust 30. anybody over 30 now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's changing a little bit, but the spirit of this age is very similar to the 60s. It just looks a lot yeah. different. No, it's it like great. that don't in the 60s, that in the 60s, and now it's like, yeah, whatever.
0: Yeah, it's turned from antagonism to to apathy.
1: Which is, in many ways, worse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's no debate, no discussion.
0: And I know uh, feminism was a topic that... Uh, came up in home groups recently uh, because we're talking about the family, uh, the structure and design that God has. Um, Brad, do you want to talk about how culture in the church wrestled with this, uh, this movement, this phenomena in the 20th and, and now the 21st century? Yes. A lot of, uh, like I
1: say, the things that we talk about here out trace its roots to Fuller Seminary. I've got some of my dates apparently wrong. That's what I was trying to find. Uh, Paul King Jewett uh, wrote a book, one of the most accomplished scholars at at Fuller wrote a book called Man as Male and Female. And in the book he asserted that Paul contradicts himself when he says that women are not to have authority over men as teachers. But then he also says that all the walls are broken down in Christ between there's no male and female Jew, Gentile, slave or free. Uh, The explanation was that Paul was both rabbi and an apostle. He was a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, and he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And so and this is going to come up again tonight too. When he spoke with the Jews he was one way, when he spoke with the Gentiles he was another way. But that falls apart immediately when you look where Paul was writing when he said there is no uh, male and female he was writing to gentiles but he it was also writing to gentiles when in, to to Timothy who you remember had a Jewish mother gentile father and Paul when Paul took him on the ministry on ministry trip with a missionary trip was the first thing that Paul did said you have to be circumcised. So uh, Timothy who was rather uh, a Gentile in his thinking was a pastor, teaching elder at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus when Paul wrote to him and said that I do not allow women to teach or to have authority over men. Um, And so what Jewett did was to give evangelicals the freedom to explain away things that they didn't like that, that were out of step with the culture. Um, there was a trajectory idea. Now think about how this impacts the ways that people interpret Scripture today, which is that Paul was saying, he was sort of putting these things out there saying essentially, I know that you're not going to get this now, but eventually you will get it. Like one day men and women will not have distinctive roles as they do in our society today. Another problem with that by the way, just as an aside, is that Paul ties his teaching to creation. And even though he doesn't make the connection, it's very easily made in the Trinity, uh, with the Trinity, how there are roles, there's equality, and yet there are roles in, within the Trinity. Um, so trajectory, the, the idea of uh, uh, of trajection being set by the Apostle Paul allows you to explain away anything you don't like that's out of step with the culture. What, can you think of another one that we're we're dealing with? Uh, yeah, same-sex marriage. Paul didn't really mean that. He was <laughs> tipping his hat to the culture of the day, but <laughs> what he really meant was that one day this was not going to matter. Unlike inerrancy, uh, where there was clear, there were clearly defined positions, and the debate was almost entirely within the church. Culture impacted this this debate enormously. So, feminism, evangelical feminism, which Brian Borgman says is an oxymoron, um, has impacted a great... And and think of all the evangelical churches you know where they don't hold the same kind of beliefs or the positions that we
0: hold based on our understanding of Scripture. I want to make a a couple comments. Uh, At this point, we see of course, in the 1960s, uh, kind of kicking things off, and and throughout, that culture was wanted to liberate women from the patriarchal system, and the church was very similarly following suit. Uh, typically, what you hear is the church is about 10 years behind culture. I think in recent years, that that time span is, is greatly reduced. Um, but feminism in the culture was looking not only for the liberation of women, but for the ubiquity of genders, that they didn't want equality, but they wanted sameness, that there is no difference in genders. And, uh, and then part of the church had that same battle, uh, and they went the same way as, as the culture where they looked at the, the trajectory. We mentioned a couple classes ago about liberation theology for right. uh, the South Americans and also for the black Americans, and, and now for women also, that we want to uh, be this worldly centered and, and uh, raise up the poverty, and in this case of women, out of the poverty of, of the world and and they took the cultural feminism and the christian feminism started on two different platforms but they had the same goal in mind and they took similar means to get there and um, today what you would one of the names you might hear out there if you go to the bookstore the christian bookstore and you would see the name of uh, like rachel held evans is is popular and in the last couple of years she's had some uh, if you want to call them hits, some a uh, book or two out there, but she's very sarcastic when it comes to the biblical understanding of, of the roles of men and women. She's in and out of evangelicalism. She went a span of about three years uh, of not going to church at all and only recently began going to a church again, I, I believe an Episcopalian. Um, so she would be called an egalitarian uh, which is one of the the terms you see at the bottom there, that uh, they are very similar to the cultural feminists where they don't see or don't want any distinction between men and women. And that's the opposite pole of the patriarchal system which uh, most cultures historically have been known to have where the the husband or father is is dominant and the, the wife is subservient or really all women are subservient it to all men. Whereas the biblical position, and then I'll toss it back over to Brad, is that um, there's a biblical middle ground that God's design is that we are equal, but different. And in those differences, God has given us different roles. And uh, what, what was the year on the, the uh, 1987 formed the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, Grudem is on that council as well. I can't remember some of the others. You probably... Piper, Piper. Um, oh, the
1: Grace, um, Sovereign Grace, uh, C.J. Mahaney. Mm-hmm. Don't know about MacArthur. Um, Bruce Ware may have been. I
0: don't. I don't know. Familiar for it. So they formed in order to explain and defend the biblical view. Were you guessing, or do you know that yes. MacArthur? Okay. okay. So this is from uh, John Piper. I'll, I'll give you a moment to read that uh, as well as Brad, if you have any other more, uh, any other comments about feminism, both in culture and, and really how the church dealt with it. Uh, I think they were split much of evangelicalism landed uh, on firm ground of biblical truth. But then we see the egalitarian movement is, is big. It's still big in the church, mainline churches. One of the things I,
1: you, I heard you mention a while ago, and it may have been while I was trying to frantically check my dates, but um, the, you mentioned from Fuller Seminary the, came the, the, the comment that Scripture is true in matters of faith and practice. And whether it was stated or not, the implication is in matters of history and science, not so much. In fact, there are errors there, but that's not our concern. In matters of faith and practice, uh, scripture is true. Um, do you do you think of and, and and it would have been called limited inerrancy? In other words, you know, there's which which again is an oxymoron, right? Limited inerrancy. Um, do you think a person, and I didn't plan to ask this question, you think a person can believe like that and be saved? Oh yeah, absolutely, I I do. Uh, but it is a departure from... God, yeah. all things are possible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Orthodox. God, all things are possible. There yeah. are a lot of confused believers. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. there are a lot of confused believers, and... and here's, a, here's a $10 <laughs> term for it, cognizant dissidence. We are a society that lives in cognizant dis- dissidence, which is, We hold two opposing views, but yet we believe them both. They're mutually exclusive, but yet we somehow affirm both, and and we see a lot of that.
1: Um, Yes, and because the church is so wrapped up in the culture, um, another... Negative thing that came out of uh, Fuller was the church growth movement, where essentially uh, social, um, cultural, Methods were employed to help grow the church. It didn't matter about the, the script the biblical mandates. It's a matter of, you know, what does culture want? What does culture need? Let's address felt needs. And you, you preach to that. Andy Stanley has said some amazingly bad things. Andy Stanley. Who I want to think highly of and has some brilliant things to say, but says expository preaching is lazy because you know what you're going to preach, you know. And I, I guess he's never been an expository preacher, I suppose. But. You don't uh, have
0: to make up all the stuff. Yeah.
1: That's true. That's creative. Yeah. So. But once again, culture is telling the church how to function rather than the church functioning like the church. It's not so much the church's responsibility to tell culture how to function. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 about the man who was living in such horrible sin, you know, with his stepmother? Hmm. And he said, don't associate with such a person. And then what did he say? you remember what comes right after that? I'm not saying don't associate with anybody who lives like this, just not with those who call themselves believers because if you didn't associate with anybody, you'd have to go out of the world, you know. I mean, it's just yeah, like this is going to exist in culture, but this is not who we are. And repent. Call this man to repentance. Actually, Paul didn't call him to repentance. He said, I'm done
0: with it. And, um, <clears throat> but So Uh, another we we call it movement that began in the theological academia in in scholarship, uh, which of which uh, N.T. Wright is probably the most notable spokesman is what's called the new perspective on Paul. And um, it, it actually ties in again i'll have to wait till we get to the slide but all these are connected with similar themes and and they're based on similar ideas about scripture but uh, i'm going to ask brad to talk a little bit about it because I'll, i'll tell you i read about a dozen articles on the new perspective on paul in the last month and it is a very Subtle movement, uh, verbiage, uh, things that they're putting forth. It's it's just like we said before. It's not what they say wrong; it's what they don't say. And we'll look at a couple of uh, comments, some quotes about uh, from those who critique the movement, and that's what they're saying: is that if you read it. It sounds good it sounds reasonable but then if you look at what they're actually saying it takes the light off of historic understanding of of what Scripture is saying what Paul was teaching in the epistles so they redefine justification just enough to make it mean something Different than what we have come to find in not just the reformed expression of the faith, but looking at Scripture itself, they uh, take the emphasis off of imputed righteousness, and you know we're not even sure if there is an imputation and it de-emphasizes the personal nature of salvation. You see, what's tricky about it is it doesn't deny personal salvation. It just removes the focus on it and of it and moves it elsewhere. Um, And you see there what Mueller says that, it's not what he proposes to add to our understanding, but what he wants to take away. Mm-hmm. What else can you say about it? Um, let me
1: ask on the basis of what you just said. What, what does imputed righteousness mean?
3: We are made righteous by Christ's sacrifice. Right. Made righteous by Christ's sacrifice. That makes us undeservedly,
1: but we, are, we become righteous. Right. His righteousness is credited to our account. We're made righteous by Jesus' righteousness. Is His righteousness. At great exchange, He took our sin. We get His imputed or extended or given credited, credited righteousness. Position, not condition. Position, not condition.
0: Which is a good thing, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the two phrases that help me is that the great exchange, and there's a double imputation. It's not just one way. The the whole exchange is that Christ has taken our sin, but His righteousness. The, that's why He didn't just descend from the clouds, die, and go, go back up. He actually lived the perfect life. His righteousness is credited to us. So there's an exchange. His righteousness for our sin. And and invite and the other way as well. Um,
1: So, so. what do you remember? What is rather recent figure in church history uh, said that to speak of Christ's righteousness being accounted credited to our account is gospel fiction. Remember who said that? Finney. Finney, Charles Finney. Yep. Charles Finney, this great evangelical hero, uh, before the term evangelical was even coined, but um, here's what John Frame says about the new perspective on Paul, and, and really the only reason I, I was thinking is I was studying this, the same thing as Neil was, Like I'm not sure we really need to talk about this, but N.T. Wright is the most important theologian alive today. Hmm. He's not the one you know the best, but he is the most important. He has He's having the greatest impact on scholar. theology. He is a tremendous scholar and, and uh, talk about that in a moment. Uh, so here's what Frame says. I'm quoting almost word for word. Essentially the point is that when Paul spoke of justification, he was not primarily interested in how a sinner can get right with God, but rather in the conditions for belonging to God's covenant in a community. So the conditions were different for Jews and Gentiles. This is the point. So Paul, being primarily a champion of Gentile membership in the kingdom of God through Christ, is not criticizing his fellow Jews because of their attempts attempts to save themselves by their, their work as Luther thought, but rather He is criticizing them for being exclusive, for rejecting religious fellowship with Gentiles, and for expecting them to become Jews through circumcision and strict adherence to the Jewish law. In this view, to be justified is to be a member of the covenant community in good standing. My goodness, that is... It's horrible. It's just horrible. Paul makes it very clear in Romans, does he not? There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We both are trying to get to God a different way or ignore God in different ways. But we all come to the same place. There is none righteous, no not one. And the only hope for righteousness for anybody Jew or Gentile is through faith in Christ. Um, The one good thought in this view is Paul's concern with the unity between Jews and Gentiles but you cannot allow an emphasis on a minor area that's good to overtake in a horrible way something that's far more important. So it, but this it, it tells us a couple things. If, if a guy like N. T. Wright, who Tim Keller says has great work on the resurrection, and D. A. Carson speaks warmly and fondly of Tom Wright, and and John Piper says I don't consider this heretical. I consider it. I wouldn't exegete Romans the same way that he does. There's so obviously this man is has a lot of value within within the Christian world, uh, in, in the conservative Christian world. but So it tells us two things. All theologians have blind spots. And that includes all of us because we're all theologians, right? And secondly, just because a person is wrong in one area doesn't necessarily negate everything else. He says, "Neil has talked about this repeatedly through this class. One of the goals is for us to discern, to be able to discern when we're reading people. And the only reason we have the ability of course understanding let me just back up because that's going to sound wrong the Holy Spirit gives us insight but he gives insight to every believer, every child of God and we come up with different ideas and the only reason that we have the ability to discern between good and and, and bad theology in addition to the Holy Spirit helping us is all of the work that so many other people have done So don't, even if you disagree with somebody, don't necessarily write off everything they say. It may be that they have something to contribute in uh, the big scheme of things. And
2: the real thing is not so much all the work that people have done over the last 2,000 years, but comparing it to what the Bible actually says, uh, there's a lot of of points to the left and to the right where everybody has, so you have to Discern back to the original source. Mm-hmm. But that, and, and
1: yes, and I agree with that. And let me just expand on it is that that's what people have been doing for 2,000 years. They've been comparing it with the scripture and they go in every direction and it keeps coming back. And we're,
2: why? You, go back to true north, you, you can't necessarily just rely on. You. No, absolutely right. not. Why, yeah.
1: why, though, will we never? Get to true north as a church, as a broad church.
0: We're broken. Yeah, yeah. That's it's that's that's the short answer. Broken, <laughs> broken people are sometimes the means that, that God uses. Uh, oftentimes, um, here are a few more quotes uh, critiquing the new perspective. Uh, what it tends to do is what Wright does is. You think back to the Reformation, the Reformers said that the Catholic Church had justification wrong, that we are justified by faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, whereas the Catholic Church are saying it's faith and works. What Wright does is when he redefines justification he lays the groundwork for an ecumenical movement of bringing, you know, it's a big umbrella, bringing everybody back together because the whole argument about the Reformation should never have happened because both the Catholic Church and the Reformers got justification wrong. And now he's saying this is what justification really is. So that really transforms the the discussion. And uh, lays the found work for our next movement, which is ecumenism, or you may call it ecumenicalism. Um, if you think back to our early classes in the early church, we talked about the Catholic Church with a little C, Catholic, and the ecumenism or the ecumenical church, which is worldwide. Uh, this is and it was a good this thing. This is everybody. Yeah, it, it's good to be in united, the early church <laughs> uh, uh, across <laughs> geographic areas, across time, even. Uh, however, in recent days, the ecumenical movement is focused less on bringing people back to true north and more about building bridges despite very large chasms over things like justification, justification. Um, nature and sovereignty of God, uh, all these things that Protestants and Catholics still disagree about, but yet we're seeking to bring ourselves under the same authority or the same umbrella, so to speak. So um, is there good in it? Yeah. It's good to be friendly. It's good to dialogue. Uh, I don't think necessarily that that we could ever come into agreement with a a quote unquote church that still denies the essentials of the biblical faith. Uh, So when you see groups like the evangelicals and Catholics together, are they doing some good things? Sure. Uh, I think in the long run though, their, their goal is in error. And the NPP down there is the which, which makes the ecumenical movement more, mm-hmm. more likely. And one of our last, last couple of things is this kingdom theology, where we hear the term already, not yet. Okay, the kingdom's already here, but it's not yet. What does that mean? Where did it come from? This is a, a little bit of a tough one to nail down. We, I finally found that it was Gerhardus Voss in the early 20th century that came up with the paradigm of the already-not-yet. I think, though, if we were to look back into the writings of the 2,000 years of church history, we would find that they believe, too, that we are living in the the kingdom that Christ inaugurated. But yet we're still looking forward to the the consummation and the fulfillment of it. But having that term, that phrase didn't come about until the 20th century. Um, But what's interesting about it, and and Brad, you may comment uh, on it in your own perspective, but I I thought it was interesting. I can't remember what I was reading, but it said every group co-opted the term for their own purposes. And i put a couple of examples up there. Liberals said, hey, yeah, we, we love the kingdom of theology because the kingdom is already here. We are here uh, helping society. We are building a culture uh, that is more religious or more spiritual or less poverty or, or so forth. And we're looking for the, the kingdom that to come that no man will be put down, that there will be no poverty. So it's very worldly, very liberal idea um, taken from this state." And then Pentecostals are on the other extreme where they say, yes, we agree the kingdom is already and not yet. It's already here because God has given the power of of healing and prophecy and these things so that some are indeed healed. But yet the kingdom is not fully here because not everyone is healed. Uh, So you can see the same... Framework being used, being co-opted by any and, and every group for their own purposes. And we, we just need to fall back on, yes, Christ has inaugurated the, the kingdom and we are still awaiting its consummation, its fullness, its, its glory, its manifest glory um, for that day that is not yet.
1: It is one of those uh, confusing <laughs> things about the day in which we live, isn't it? That... People, a lot of people use the same term, but they have a lot of different meanings. Same terms.
0: That's one point I really wanted to bring out that I think you should probably remember over the last several classes that I've mentioned, we really need to define our terms when we're talking to someone about Jehovah's Witness, uh, what they believe or what, which Christ do you believe in? Uh, it's the same here. Um, people can have the same terms but mean it differently or come at it from a different perspective. So not only do we need to define our terms, but I think we need to take that extra step and try to understand what the other person is meaning when they say something. Dominion uh, theology is
1: has a sort of a, it's a th- Theocracy or theocratic kind of a view. Lee, do you have anything to add about that? I studied it in seminary, and there was a group that used to come to TVR. It was a very conservative Baptist group. Uh, you know them. I can't remember. They finally quit coming. The Christian School. Oh, no, it's down. It was a like a high school from Central Florida somewhere, uh, and they were very conservative, but they were Dominion theology. Uh, you would think that that would be maybe a little more... Well, no, it would be conservative. Mm-hmm.
0: I couldn't get my... It's like the new perspective on Paul's kind of hard to get your head around. There's probably a spectrum there, too, where some could mean dominion theology in order to be good stewards of the kingdom of, of the earth that, that God has given us, but then you can also right. sway to the other side of you know, being domineering. Yeah. dominion theology also... The of going
2: back
1: to Old Testament. Yeah, it, it is because of theocracy. It is a theocracy. It's kind of like a New Testament theocracy. Yeah. A church... Uh, being in charge. And it would lend itself, it seems to me, to um, Christendom, uh, to post-millennial kind of theology that the world is going to get better and better. We're going to usher in the kingdom. Bert, I was trying to think also, and I don't think there's any connection between this and Douglas Wilson's theology, but that's another important theology. And I know you've been sort of intrigued by this guy. Tell us who he is and what you know about his theology. I'm not, I've done a
3: whole lot about it. He's a, I guess, another one of these influential guys that you don't know. He's not
1: well-known. Right, but he has a lot of influence. He
3: has started a college uh, called New St. Andrews College in um, one of those godforsaken Midwestern states. Well, it's, out, it's Idaho. Yeah, yeah, it's on out close to the Anyway, yeah. Somewhere I wouldn't want to live. <laughs> That's all I know. But no, no. But anyway, and it's a very, you know, it's it's very conservative in a lot of ways. Um, you know, um, I think he is a very dictatorial kind of figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met I've met one person, and I've heard other people say, you know, oh, we used to be very good friends. You know, he seems to be a guy that has close friends that don't. Don't they, stick. They don't stay hmm. as close friends. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, I don't exactly know why that is, but I think it has to do with his leadership style, and uh, he. Um, and he is post millennial, which is I- intriguing. It's like about the only when they're in their statement there. It's hmm. not the only thing I would that I at least on the surface that I would disagree with is the post millennial. Although I'm not like the reformers, I'm not all that concerned about millennial views, but. But I would disagree with the post millennial, um, and he's gotten into trouble recently, or within the last I don't know five years or so, because he. Wrote an article, uh, a book. Was it a whole? Black book?
1: and tan, yeah.
3: It's called uh, what was it, neo or paleo confederacy or something? Like yeah,
1: that? It, the title, uh, the title of the book is black and tan. Unless it's we're talking about a different book, but that. Yeah.
3: And he had this whole thing about sort of a sympathy with the con- Confederate um, yeah. style, government, and I, not so much the. Um, not slavery, but, but I think even that he would say, well, there's different, the races have different roles in, hmm. our, in our work. Yeah. I mean, he said some things that made people really nervous and angry.
1: Yeah, I was actually at a conference in Raleigh, Sean and David, and I were at this conference and uh, th- this came up and some of the guys, Brian Loritz, who's African-American, was quite upset with it. It, He had just made some controversial statements and John Piper was like, you guys need to be patient and and that did not sit well. Mm. And I didn't, I I had never heard of the guy until this conference, but it didn't sit well with Sean and David, either one, you know, and a lot of the younger guys that know uh, about this movement. So interesting
0: well, our final term or movement would be this cross-centered or gospel-centered, you know, fill in the blank, gospel-centered life, gospel-centered church, gospel-centered uh, you just you name it. Um, and I think this has become you see the quote by Kim de that these are terms as evangelicalism has broadened and moved more to the left. Gospel centered seems to be something probably within the last decade that has really has uh, been more prevalent. And it pretty much means the, the same thing that evangelicalism began meaning, that uh, we stand firm on truth, we want to live it out, and we want to live around uh, the, what the gospel is that Christ has redeemed me, and, and we're participating in the ministry of reconciliation, but it all centers around Christ and what, and what He's done. <laughs>
1: yeah that's also what you just said is one of the big problems with the new perspective on Paul he emphasizes covenant community and the gospel emphasizes individually even though we are part of a covenant community we must individually stand before God the judge and it's not just a matter about being right with the community it's about being right with God and then you can be a a proper contributor to the community
0: so as we bring it to modern day and we look into the future, this is I have a one, picture of each one of you. Yeah. <laughs> this is one opinion of the overview of history, looking at the, the maturation of the church through the ages. Wouldn't necessarily agree with all of it, looking at the early church in those early centuries that... Would they not have been mature enough to handle the things that are facing us today I don't think that's what we should gain from it because I think they were they landed on the biblical the true side of the challenges that they faced um, so this is more just a, a thoughtful piece to get you thinking about what we may be facing in the in the coming days or the coming decades even. Uh, Christianity today has uh, put out their three trends that they foresee in the next, three, the next 10 years, excuse me. Um, we see the hemorrhaging of mainline Protestantism, continued growth of Pentecostal and the charismatic movement, more so probably in the global south, which would be those, what used to be termed the third world countries, Asia, Africa, and South America. Uh, networks will explode in number and influence. Well, what are we talking about networks? They're not churches, they're not denominations, but they're loosely held organizations that are more in the cloud. They're more online than they are geographically located. Uh, The Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, all these networks of leaders and churches and organizations coming together for for more singular purposes in order to uh, advance the gospel. So I was going to throw to Brad this question Um, as the teaching elder and pastor to so many of us what do you see as the challenge or what will be the challenges to the church at large and perhaps here at Grace? Well, um, I I was just thinking as you
1: were talking about these three, especially the last one, Networks Will Explode in Number and Influence, how grateful I am that we are in the position we are in. in that we are not tied to denominational confessional uh, theology that that we might not fully agree with, but we agree as a whole. On the other hand, we've You know, our elders talk about all kinds of things, and one of the things that we've talked about is, you know, the advantages of being connected with the denomination, especially in the days ahead. Uh, The same sex marriage issue is going to divide very quickly the serious minded from the non serious minded because there's going to be a price to pay for taking a stand, a biblical stand, what we consider to be a biblical stand against. uh, same-sex marriages. So the challenge is going to be possibly immediate. Uh, just read a really great article today that I sent around to the elders by, once again, Carl Truman from Philadelphia, who uh, talked about... Uh, that this will not hold. No matter how many people agree with you, you cannot change reality. The reality of the ways that God designed men and women to function, no matter how much the culture agrees with you, you can't do it. And sooner or later, Paul Johnson in his book, um, Modern Times, back in the 80s, basically world history from the 20s to the 80s, uh, early 80s, Paul Johnson is a believer he 's a historian, very highly respected historian in in England and I read the book and it was alternately just like all good history, riveting and incredibly boring, depending on you know where you are in, in, and, and, and sometimes facing pages can be one or the other and So, but he talked about the fact that um, relativism, which of course we have been facing for a long time, truth is relative, what's true for you is not necessarily true to me. Always degenerates into confusion and uh, confusion will degenerate to anarchy and out of anarchy order will come, but it will not be the kind of order that you want. Yeah. Bert, you've talked about this a lot uh, about Hitler. Just say what you've been saying recently well, about the 30s and 20s and 30s. I've been thinking a lot about
3: culture, which is very similar to Germany in the 20s, 20s and 20s, which by the early 30s had become surely as debauched as we are. I mean, open sex clubs, and I mean, it was just a, sorry, but um, just very, very debauched. And it needed to be cleaned up. And a man came along that said, we need to clean this place up. And he was right, as far as that goes. But that's, I mean, I think a lot of people would be very hard-pressed to believe that an extreme right-wing dictator could possibly be, be a possibility in this country. But I don't think he would have thought that about enlightened Germany yeah. in the 30s either.
1: No. Absolutely not.
3: That, I mean, it was a very civilized, enlightened country. Although the, the theology that was the sort of the cradle of theology, but they were all atheists, all the, all the theologians in Germany in the early 20th century. That was one of the things that Mark uh, was, you know, he was like the only theologian in Germany who believed in
1: God. Right, and and of course, he was a big fan of Karl Barth, who in Switzerland, but nonetheless, um, huge influence on that kind of thinking. But yeah. anyway, anyway, and that could
3: come close to sort of quasi Christian guys, sort of like Hitler. Yeah, I think people make too much about Hitler was a Christian. He he was oh, not up. at all. Uh, but he did sort of co-opt a certain Christian, like the Teutonic Knights, and he was kind of more into like you know that kind of Teutonic mythology and Norse mm-hmm. gods and stuff like that. But but um, there was a certain Christian flavor to
0: it. Right. It really grew but, through the national church,
3: cynically, you know, used, mm-hmm. but. And the, and the Germans, in fact, that's Bonhoeffer's people, finally decided they had to pull away from the German church. They tried to stay in because they were trying to say, we have to keep things right, you know, but finally they just said, we have to pull away. And they called themselves the Confessing Church uh, as opposed to the, the German church. And, uh, and paid were, a high like, price. Like, <clears throat> old seminaries and stuff like that. Yes. So anyway, that's just I just that's what I sort of think is a possibility. This kind of ruthless, Mm -hmm. moralistic, you know, crackdown.
2: As as enlightened as the Germans considered themselves in that time, uh, another parallel to what we see kind of on the horizon for us. uh, They had a lot of. Other issues that were coming in and crowding out other, you know, the the root concerns, the economy falling out from under, war, yeah. the ravages from the from the war, you know, trying to just survival things makes it very easy to forget your foundations, and I see the same thing. Here. I mean, you know, Security,
1: economic crisis, economic
2: crisis, um, you know, military situations, um, you know, terrorism, whatever that people are focusing on those issues instead of the core. Well, and then the question is, who becomes a scapegoat? Mm-hmm. Um,
3: and I think it could be religious fundamentalists which we would be a part of, as others would too, such as uh, Muslims. I think Mm -hmm. we'll get lumped in. It'll be the crazy terrorists and the crazy... Christian, just anyone that's in that kind of crazy fundamentalist camp. I mean, I think from their perspective, would, I think might become the scapegoats.
0: Yeah, Bible-believing Christians have already been called extremists right. by, by several talking heads. So it's just a matter of time before that becomes the mainstream. In fact, it's in. already
2: been prepared and even excelled. Where some of the some of the talking heads are treating mainline or the Christian. Uh,
1: Orthodox just, evangelical Christians, yeah.
2: ...as even more dangerous. Yeah. In fact...
0: It's even military.
2: Well, I mean, in fact, to the point of de-emphasizing the, the Islam, in fact, they seem to be more scared of stirring them yeah. up. Yeah.
1: Well, that we've seen that not work before as well uh, in England.
2: What would it
0: be interesting if... Uh, all, all the Christians in America became very serious about being mm. sanctified and, uh, and, and doing, well, we do good works. But I was thinking back in the
2: early church, a lot of impressed the uh, exactly. Christians do good work.
1: And, uh, and they didn't, you know, one of the reasons that I think they were free to do that was they didn't have to worry about politics. And, and we may be going there yeah. sooner rather than lady, later because we're just going to be so ostracized that it's time. It's, that's a great word, Lee, that we, we ought to get about uh, serving one another and serving those in our communities in the same way. And uh, so... And it's those kinds of acts of love that speak to people. And
0: you know, with parallels drawn between us today and the, uh, and the early church in Rome.
1: And we talked about this last time. Was it uh, uh,
0: Julian the Apostate
1: mm-hmm. who said? He said, "Greeks take care of their poor, Romans that they're poor, Jews they're poor, Christians take care of all the poor. We how, how can we stamp out that kind of a?" A movement.
0: There, it does remind me of an a article by Russell Moore I read, I believe it was today, he posted this week uh, in response to the Pew Research poll that came out recently about the declining numbers in America who identify as, as Christian, and that's including Catholics and Protestants. Uh, and he asked, you know, is American Christianity dead or dying? He answers yes, and it's a good thing. Uh, Now, that needs some explaining because as the numbers who self-identify as Christian is dropping those who identify as none, as no religious preference or atheist or agnostic, those are rising. So really all we're doing is not only do we have atheists, but we have honest, honest atheists who culturally in previous decades would have called themselves Christian. They were cultural Christians. Um, They went to church on Sundays. They, they stayed married, uh, even though they were unhappy, because it It gained them benefit culturally, whereas now it's okay to be agnostic, it's okay to be atheist, and there's no kickback. So really, those people who were nominal Christians, who were Christian in name only, who had no foundation, no root in the soil, uh, they're simply changing names. So we will have to be identified
1: with our beliefs, which will be considered extreme. And... You know, we essentially they are now. We 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 have two options, and I guess the third option would be a combination of the two. But one would be to fight, or the other is just to love in in ways that give the lie to the accusations that were hateful, mean, spiteful, and that we just want to keep people from finding true love um, and. Whatever relationship, in fact, God made a, a, you know, made certain people this way, so how, how dare you? How could you? So uh, obviously, in a democracy, we have that freedom to speak
0: our peace, but be careful how you speak it. Mm-hmm before we gain some comments and questions from you I just want to give Brad another opportunity to flesh out anything that you have for us and then I'm going to ask if uh, ask you all uh, what impressed you the most learning any of this church history was there an era or a topic or person that that really stuck out to you are there any questions that maybe haven't made it onto the discussion board yet that that we want to address uh, what have you learned um, so I'll first look over to Brad who's shaking his head final thoughts have been given and for this we should have done it earlier but i will we'll turn on the microphones and hand it around to anybody who wants to to comment but we are being recorded. This is, we, yeah, there are, there are folks who listen to the recording in one of the, the Many, there. many, many more than attend these sessions,
1: yeah. actually. Many more. At least that's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> I do too with all the studying I've had to do. You
4: can flip that switch. I'll start if it's on. All right. Well, I didn't really have a a real specific comment about a particular period or a particular figure in church history, but um, I just have really found that the study has it's helped me to feel connected to the body of Christ around the world and through time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's helped me looking back has helped me to look forward Mm -hmm. and, um, to think about, um, being with all the saints in heaven and, um, Living in the times that we're living in, sometimes I I feel pretty anxious about um, our earthly future. But then when I look back, <laughs> he says you can say that again, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, when I look back and, and, and I see all that the church has gone through, I'm just much more aware of God's sovereignty and of the hope we have in Christ. So it's been a great study, and I thank you both so much.
1: And oddly, at peace, yes. you know, it, it in an odd way it, it, it addresses that anxiousness, doesn't
4: it? Mm-hmm.
0: If no one else has something, I want to ask you something. Um, Back when we began, we had a few goals in mind that we put out, and uh, some of those were to give you a historical context for the development of theology um, for the last 2,000 years, to sharpen and build our discernment skills, and also to foster unity among believers. And we, we looked at, it's okay that brother so-and-so disagrees with me on this particular issue, but we can go shoulder to shoulder and defend the truth together because we serve this, we're, we're covered by the same blood of Christ. So I'll ask you, did we meet those goals? And how have you grown throughout this study? Do you feel like you can discern theological positions and comments about passages of Scripture a little better? Do you feel more united with those who may disagree with you in certain areas? We failed.
4: (laughs) Well, I think the thing I got a lot, or noticed a lot of, is how many of our Doctrines today are new doctrines that the church for eighteen hundred years didn't go this way, and then all of a sudden it switched. And the coming of Christ is the one that I think of the most. It's always been post-trib for
1: centuries, and, and then all of a sudden, even. yeah, all of a sudden it's no, he's coming and taking us out of all this mm-hmm. before it happens. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I can really buy into that
4: having looked at the history because hmm. God never took his people out of persecution in the Bible. Right. And I and one writer I don't remember who it was said a lot of
1: that comes from our prosperity. We expect things to be good mm-hmm. and the church has rejected
4: the thought that we would have to go through a tribulation.
2: A tribulation but the tribulation that's spoken of in Daniel and Revelation has never happened before so you can't you can't exactly say that because he hasn't done done this before that he's not going to do it in the future.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, God can do and what he I wants to do. Did.
2: If you look at the flood, for instance, that's the closest thing you have to that. There's three groups of people when you deal with the flood. Those who were on the ark and were preserved through the flood those who died in the Flood or before the Flood, and Enoch, who was taken out before the Flood. So there is a a parallel, at least potentially.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we have just proven the point that we can disagree (laughs) 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 on some things and agree on the big things. I'm with you, Marjorie. I'm just not as sure anymore, and part of it is that study, but just my study overall. But but I'm not certain by any means. I'm not certain. I just don't know. Somebody said prepare for post-trib, pray for pre-trib. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> a,
2: good, that's a good plan. And I, I uh, was talking to David uh, the other day. My position... My position, I do believe, I, I, I would put myself pre-trib, but I would call it, uh, to use the words of Daniel's friends, uh, pre-trib, but if not. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I
2: have a question. Uh,
0: I wasn't here the first year, and the uh, first half of the this past year, I was sort of tied up. And um, But uh, through, through the time, I'm just interested in the, using the term from tonight of true north. Uh, I'm assuming that all the way through, we've been able to see... Uh, the essence of True North and uh, sort of the the counterfeits on either side of the spectrum. And I was just curious if that, uh, to everybody here, if that's sort of Mm. been the case.
1: It's not exactly a case of, um, you know, a clock is right twice a day uh, if it's broken, if it doesn't work at all. But it is that, it's almost like that pendulum and it feels like it hits it. And there's always somebody there. But you're just watching it go like that. Um, and the Catholic Church, my goodness, the error of the church for so long, no it, the dark ages, you know it was it was truly dark ages from a spiritual standpoint, but you ask for that to come from everybody, not just from
2: which is why I put a little bit less faith in the past of it because you can see how far it's gone away from, uh, from as we would call it, true north in other areas. And are these new doctrines or are these doctrines that were uh, persecuted and stamped out out of the church and the reformers left these issues alone, but maybe they left them alone because they had all they, all they could handle dealing with the ones that they were dealing with. What's
1: your definition of the Trinity? Three persons, one essence, right?
2: For the most part. I honestly think when we get to heaven, we'll look at our definition of the Trinity and laugh and think how woefully inept of a description it is for what really is there. Uh, I believe uh, elements that we use to define the Trinity that come from the Bible are definitely, uh, you know, those revelations are definitely there. I think the formula is what a bunch of a bunch of people came together and there are elements of it that are definitely right on because they're definite direct revelations. But I think there's a lot more to, lot more to the Godhead than we can. Uh, agreed, agreed. But what we are
1: able to articulate, we are able to do so. But primarily because of the work that was done in the fourth century or the fifth century, fourth and fifth centuries. Fr- primarily the fourth century of those guys, but. We could talk about that all night long. Well,
2: even a blind pig finds a, finds a tru- uh, truffle every now and then. <laughs> yeah, those were you not find, blind pigs. You find a few things like that, but you also find many of, throughout the church history, you find many things that went off to the left or to the right as, uh, you know, as to use the, the analogy we've been using, um, not putting down the things that are right, but making making the uh, emphasizing the essence to go back to the original um, and be careful of relying on um, on man, on the things of tradition. Of, of tradition, a uh, good example is the argument between faith and works. J- uh, Paul and uh, James. If you take that argument, they're saying exactly opposite things. But if you read the full passages of that, they're both saying the same thing. Paul is saying you are you are saved by faith unto works. James is saying that your works are what shows your faith. They're, but you take the the arguments through the church, you know, the history of church, and they hit on one issue and another, make them and twist them. I'm just saying, going back to the standard of scripture, okay. and Let's I will. This.
1: this is my final thought, and then I'll throw it to Neil. The only thing worse than and relying strictly on the faults of other people is to rely on your own. Mm-hmm. If you go, it's not too dissimilar from Kant, from Descartes who said, I want to get out all outside influences and I'm going to discover God. Now the difference you're talking about is that we have scripture in front of us and the Holy Spirit inside of us and that is a it is an absolutely true thing. But all of us in any field are limited if all we think is what we think, which is the whole purpose of this class, to realize that there's a whole lot more that's been said and done and thought of than us so Neil your final thoughts in prayer
0: yeah and uh, hopefully this course has been one of those things that will help sharpen that tool in your tool bag of of discernment Um, so as we close up uh, just be reminded that all these resources will be online I'll I'll put up some discussion questions uh, and thank you for you know Marguerite and and those others who have uh, put in comments on the discussion board uh, I appreciate everybody sticking through the months, through the, months, Both through the of you. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I've enjoyed it. So thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be a part of it. Um, so I think that's it. And thank you, Neil, for the work you've put in. Thank you. Unbelievable. If you want to learn something, prepare to teach it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll close this in prayer, prayer and then we can get going. Father God, we praise you and thank you that you have sent your son and saved us. Uh, Those who have put our trust in you, we thank you for that great exchange. We thank you that you have sent us your word and the spirit who indwells us and illumines our understanding of your word. I pray that you would continue to grow and mature us. Help us to do it together. That we would care for one another. Help us to use the things that we have learned while looking at the centuries of your work in the church, uh, that we would apply it here in our community, in our own lives, that we would more fervently love and serve you. We thank you for this group who've continued to learn together. I pray that we would continue doing so to your glory, and we submit these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen.